you. Let's spend some time with the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. How refreshing it is, O Lord, to be able to smile and even laugh a bit in church and to be in your presence and to know this is a good and safe place for us to be. For you're the one that embraces us. You're the one that holds our very life in your hands. You're the one, dear God, who walks with us and talks with us. And you're the one, O oh Lord, who works things out in our life day by day. A God who is active and involved. A God who knows exactly what you want and how you want it. And we find joy in that. And Father, we've come to give thanks to you this morning and to praise you. But almost in the same breath, Lord, I need to remind all of us as we talk with you that there are a lot of times we don't walk with you and we don't talk with you. Times when we preempt the whole process and try to exercise our will and do what we think is right or what serves us best. And very often, Lord, you allow us to suffer the consequences of that bad behavior. Help us to know the difference, Lord. Help us to be discerning between using our gifts and allowing you to be God in our life. And help us to keep a good balance in that. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we don't keep that balance. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have as a church to be a witness in this neighborhood. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give to your churches throughout this country and around the world for the members to touch the lives of other people and to offer more than just a promise that's an empty promise, but to help them know that as they come to know your son Jesus as Savior, that this life changes and our place in eternity is secure with you. Father, we need a blessing on our country, only the kind of blessing you can give. No matter what we do or how we go about it, it's not going to be adequate unless that blessing comes from you. We pray for spiritual renewal in our land. We pray, dear God, that you would raise up people at every level and every geographic area, every vocation, every cultural subgroup. And that revival might sweep across our country and around this world. I thank you, Lord, that as we allow your Holy Spirit to work in us, that you'll use us to touch someone else and to draw them to yourself. And Lord, you did that this morning, and you do that this afternoon, and you do that every day. I pray that we might willingly be used by you. Dear God, every time we come together on Sunday to worship corporately, we have folks who are sick physically. Dear God, you know we have an unusual number who are sick this morning. 
I pray your blessing on them, and I pray your blessing on the doctors and the medical community that you have so gifted, and pray that you would use them to help folks get well. Also, dear God, when we come together, there are all sorts of other stresses that we experience because we're a fallen people in a fallen world. All of that is cause for us to look forward to heaven, where we know that will not be the case, that we will live in absolute perfection and righteousness, and that we'll be in your presence. But dear God, between now and then, I pray your help and your blessing. I pray, Father, when we start to feel stress or anxiety, that our mind and our heart would take us immediately to you. And that peace, which is beyond all human comprehension, would captive us, would take control of our hearts, and would influence the way we live. Father, there's a lot going on in our church. A lot of good things are happening. We pray, dear God, that you would keep your hand on us. And if we start to move away, draw us back. And we pray, dear God, that you would not only bless us, but help us be a blessing to others. Finally, dear God, thank you for letting us love you. For you have first loved us by sending your son Jesus, the promised Savior, to live and to die and to live again. Thank you for enfolding us into your family and making us heirs of all that Jesus has experienced, that we also might be raised from the dead and spend eternity with you. Thank you for loving us and for teaching us how to love others. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our study this morning comes out of the Revelation, the 21st chapter. I'd invite you to turn to Revelation 21, and we're going to study together the first seven verses. Revelation 21, and I'm going to begin with the first verse and study through the seventh. Please, once you've found your place, put your finger in your Bible and look up so I'll know we can move on. You know, all these years, I've tried to think of a clever way to say what I just said, and I just say the same thing every Sunday. It's kind of like testing one, two, three. You'd think we'd come up with something a little more novel or creative, but we don't. So when you find your place in your Bible, please put your finger in it, and please look up, and I'll know it's time to move on. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Let's pray. Father, we kid around a bit, and we smile, and now we open your word, and with hearts that are much in need of being warmed and minds that need to be renewed, we ask you to come alongside to speak to us as you have spoken to people in years past. For the spirit that you have given to us to be quickened in us and for us to see things and learn things today that we have not known in the past and to be encouraged about the things we have known. Please, 
allow this to change us. And thank you in advance for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you go to modern-day Turkey and you get on a boat and you start to sail west from Turkey, there's an island about 35 miles off the coast called Patmos. Not a tourist spot. If you go back in ancient history and not so ancient history, you'll see that Patmos was and still is an island about 10 miles by about 6 miles, so it's not a substantial rock sticking up out of the Aegean Sea. You'll find that it's mountainous and it's harsh for people to live there. If you go back to the time of the New Testament era, right as the New Testament era is about to close, the church has been founded, the apostles are starting to disappear from the radar screen, and we know very little about what happened to them. But after you get about 40 or 50 years beyond the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, a man that most historians believe was John the Apostle, is in the city of Ephesus, a major seaport in modern-day Turkey. He's arrested by the Roman emperor. He's put in exile on that island 35 miles offshore, virtually uninhabited. And there he is to spend the rest of his life because the Roman emperor and the Roman empire were not sympathetic to the cause of Christianity. And he was one of the men who was teaching people about Jesus. So in their minds, to get rid of him was to get rid of this spiritual thorn in the side of a pagan government. In Sunday school this morning in our covenant class, we were looking at a passage that many of us know that talks about the relationship of King Saul and his son Jonathan and a young man who had a heart for the Lord named David. And what you see, if you look at that with secular eyes, is a story that is played out over and over and over again in human history, where a secular government turns on a spiritual people and persecute those people. Sometimes it's a passive persecution, just not friendly. Other times it's very aggressive, like in the Sudan today. And what that is, is the evil one trying to stop the spread of Christianity in this world. Understand that those governments are not necessarily our friends. And that shouldn't surprise us. So here John is, exiled. And I got to thinking about John and thought about us. And I thought, you know, if I were on that island and I was as old as he was, he was much older than the average person, he must have been at least 70, maybe 80. Some would say he was even older than that. But if you just do the chronology, he had to be in his 70s. And when people were living to be 30, That's a pretty long life. 
Don't you imagine as he found himself on Patmos, the thought went through his mind, I'm never going to get off this island. I'm going to die out here. Cut off from family and friends. Cut off from the church. Don't you imagine he started thinking about heaven. We have a way of doing that when we're faced with physical death in a loved one or even ourselves. I love what the Revelation says in the first chapter. It says, on the Lord's day, this man John was worshiping, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So apparently, walking with Jesus doesn't have anything to do with proximity geographically. Would you agree? No matter where we are, no matter who we're with, we can walk with him, we can worship him, we can praise him. That's what John was doing. And John describes it this way. He said he was standing there, filled with the Spirit on the Lord's day, and as he was worshiping, suddenly he heard a voice. It was like a trumpet. And when the scriptures talk about a trumpet, it's trying to say a loud, clear voice came across that you couldn't miss. One of those attention-getting sounds. And he turns around, and what he sees are golden lampstands, and right in the middle of them is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who's come to visit John and to talk with him. And Scripture so appropriately says he fell to his knees. Wouldn't you want to fall to your knees before the Lord? I mean, here's the one he's been talking about and preaching about, and he's standing right there. And John falls to his knees, and he tells us in the Revelation that Jesus reached out and put his hand on his head and said, Hey, John, I want to talk to you. And he begins to share with John. And that's what we have before us this morning. I think the Lord surely wanted to give to his messenger an assurance about heaven because that wasn't far off in his personal life. And obviously, a compassionate and loving God wanted to do the same thing for us. And that's why it's recorded in the Revelation, to help us have a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. You and I, among all the people on earth, we ought to understand about heaven to the degree Scripture explains it. And when we hear things that are not scripturally scripturally based, you might want to just wash those away and go back to your Bible and what it teaches. It's more than sufficient. Let me read the passage to you. It is a delightful glimpse into heaven. Look at the 21st chapter of the Revelation, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Please listen very carefully, and then keep your Bibles open in your lap so you can follow along. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Folks, I want you to look at those verses, and I want you to look at the imperatives that are used over and over again, words like will and shall. I know it comes as a shock, but he didn't call us Presbyterians together in a committee meeting and say, what do you all think? He's telling us how it's going to be, and he's doing it through his servant, John. When I look at the first couple of verses, you and I begin to see what John was seeing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You know, God made a perfect world. Put Adam and Eve in that perfect world called paradise. Heaven. God walked with them and talked with them. None of the encumbrances that you and I experience today were present, for there was no sin, and that is ultimately the source of all of the encumbrances. Adam and Eve chose, as did some of the angels that God created, to rebel against God. And I like to simplify that by simply saying, they said, hey God, we're going to do this our way, and we really don't care about what you think. And that was the original sin. That was the rebellion of saying to God, I don't want you to be my God. I want to do things my way. The result of that, and God had foretold them, the result was that a corruption took place. It took place in Adam and Eve, and major things changed in their life, and no longer were they going to live forever physically, Now, physical death began to overshadow them. They began, as you read through the Old Testament, to live shorter and shorter lives until ultimately they arrived somewhere where we are today in living 70 to 100 years. We get very excited because that's been extended in the last 30 or 40 years by 10 years. 10 years pales in comparison to eternity. Secondly, people began to die physically. God said, you shall die if you rebel against me. And that physical death that we now face is a result of that original sin. A spiritual death also is included in that death. 
And he was saying, I am going to separate you from myself. And instead of you being in my presence and being blessed by that presence, I'm going to put you outside of my presence and there's nothing you can do to regain that relationship. Now we know by grace he has called people to himself and he has restored that relationship through Jesus. But that separation in one sense still exists for all of us who were created by him. And we're not going to experience, not any of us, the fullness of that restoration until we're with him in heaven. Not only did Adam and Eve become corrupted, but to the surprise of a lot of folks, when a hurricane happens, when an earthquake occurs, when a volcano erupts, when there's a harsh freeze that kills people, those are all outward signs of the corrupting of nature. All of God's creation, nature and people, became corrupted because of that original sin. And what he now says is, John says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying God's going to fix this thing. He's going to fix this earth. And he's going to fix the folks who live on this earth. It's all going to be restored. And that is yet to happen. It happens after the second coming of Jesus Christ. How many fishermen are in the room? Don't be bashful. It's okay. That's a godly avocation. I read one time that God does not subtract from your life the days that you spend fishing. I don't think that's biblical, but it sure sounds good, doesn't it? And he says in here, and there shall be no more sea. S-E-A. Isn't that distressing? Early in my ministry, I spent a good deal of time trying to figure out what that meant. Most of the time in the Bible, when the seas, the Sea of Galilee, for instance, are mentioned, it's a place of turmoil. It's a place where waves seek to drown people or seek to damage the boats that they're in. It's a place of unrest. It's a place where you don't feel secure. And any of us who've ever been offshore or on a large body of inland water know that it's not a safe place at certain times. I think what the Lord is saying to John and to us is all of that turbulence, all of that unsettledness, I'm going to take care of that also. Just as Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee, God, after the second coming, is going to put his hand on all of creation, and there will be no more of that turbulence and no more threat to us. It's going to be a perfect environment for people who are covered by the blood of Christ. If you look on just a bit more in that verse, it says, and there's going to be a new Jerusalem. You know the significance of Jerusalem? It's been at the center of human history for a very long time. It's been a place where God set up housekeeping, had a temple built where people would come to worship. 
where people who were devoted would study the Word, would study the Old Testament scrolls. But you know what else Jerusalem has been? It has been a place of great conflict. Lots of people have been hurt in Jerusalem. Lots of corruption has taken place there. And what God is saying is, I'm going to fix Jerusalem too. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is going to descend. And the place where I reside is going to be at peace and tranquility. Isn't that a beautiful picture of heaven? The next time you start to feel really put upon, and that happens to all of us, stop and just think about what's coming and that it's going to be for eternity. That this experience is like that on a timeline. And we're going to get to spend eternity with the one who's going to reconcile people and all of the earth to himself. If you look on a bit more in verses 3 through 5, John has now described what he saw, and now he's going to talk about what he's heard. And he says to us, God is going to set up his tabernacle with us. I don't use that word very often, tabernacle. Most of us don't. Um, an Old Testament professor said one time, he's going to set his tent up next to your tent. That kind of communicates the historical meaning of that word. It means God's going to be with us. He's going to reside with us. Well, it won't be the first time. He did that with Adam and Eve. And what makes heaven heaven isn't just that he's going to fix all of nature, not that he's just going to fix us. He's going to be there. He's going to walk with us and talk with us, just like he did them. We pray to him. He's going to take on the body of a human being and be there so you can relate to him. And the joy that we're going to experience by being in his presence escapes any kind of human description. We have pictures of that, of angels in heaven singing praise constantly, of being told that when people die and they go to heaven before the second coming, that they're going to be filled with joy and they're going to be praising God. So you start to understand a bit of that. The whole idea of a progression appeals to me, and the progression goes like this. During this lifetime, when we come to know Jesus, he changes our heart out. The Holy Spirit starts to reside in us, and the potential for significant change in us exists. And if we do not resist the Holy Spirit, he will change us. And as our days go by, we'll start to look a bit more like Jesus. And if that's not happening, it's because we're resisting the Spirit. Because Jesus is right here. The Spirit proceeded from the Father and from the Son. He's with us. And we have a tendency to underestimate the potential of what can happen when Christ is with us. And we need to elevate our expectations and strive to allow the Holy Spirit to have that freedom. When we die, 
before the second coming, our body goes into the ground. So does the body of the non-believer into the ground. Our souls are dispatched by God. Those who by grace have known Jesus, our souls will go to what classically is called intermediate heaven. Nothing less than a wonderful experience. But intermediate because it's temporary. Those who did not know Christ and are not covered by that grace will go to hell. A temporary assignment. We will both reside in those realms until Jesus comes again. For those of us who are believers, it's like being in heaven. Our physical bodies aren't there, but our soul is there. And we're going to have all the benefits that heaven affords between now and the second coming. Nothing is lost. Everything is gained. When Jesus comes again, there's going to be a general resurrection. All those souls that have already gone to intermediate heaven and all those souls that have already gone to intermediate hell are going to be reassembled and all of the people on earth are going to be quickened. And we're all going to stand together. Can you imagine that? And be judged on the merits of our life. Our eternal state is not being judged at that time. It has already been determined before then. We either have or have not known by grace Jesus Christ as Savior. So what he does is he takes a look, an inventory of everything we have said and everything we have done. Isn't that a frightening thought? And there's going to be some kind of response to all of that, both good and negative. And then he's going to give us a resurrected body, all of us. And then, in our new heaven and new earth, you and I are going to reside with resurrected bodies, with God walking around talking with us and being with us. And those who do not know him with their resurrected bodies will be eternally separated and in agony forever and ever. I believe with all my heart that narrative comes right straight out of Scripture. It also comes right straight out of our Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a wonderful rendering of what Scripture teaches. If you have any questions about any of that, please talk to me or to one of our elders. This is a maturing process that we're all in, so don't be hesitant to talk about it with us. If you read on a bit more in those verses, he then describes some things that are going to happen. Do you ever cry? When I was a boy, I didn't know God had given tear ducts to men. I've learned we have tear ducts also. And I have encouraged men to learn how to use them and allow their emotion to be shown at appropriate times in appropriate ways. We've all cried. I know some people who cry inside and don't cry outwardly, but we all cry. One of our members got a phone call this week that a beloved member of their family had just been found dead. Tears 
followed quite appropriately, just like you and I have experienced. The Lord says, I'm going to wipe your tears away. When you cross over into heaven, I'm going to reach out. I guess we won't be wearing glasses then, will we? And I'm going to wipe away your tears. There's a permanency about that. There's an everlasting aspect to that. I'm going to wipe away your tears, and your tear ducts will never form tears again. Isn't that beautiful? And then he says, and I heard that he's going to take away the reason we cry. There's not going to be any more death. Nobody will ever in heaven worry about dying, spiritually or physically. That's over. That will have ended. We're back with Adam and Eve, back in the garden. Everything is restored, and we call it heaven. And then he goes on to say, you're not going to be heartbroken. You're not going to mourn. You're not going to have any pain. You're not going to experience any of the tension or the hardships that you know today. Would you like to make a list of things that you'd like to see disappear real quickly when you cross over? I don't have an extensive list, but I got a few things I'd like to put on my list. And he said, it's going to be taken care of. God's going to take care of that. Which one of us doesn't, with the right motivation, stop and wonder about death? When you do that, turn to your Bible quickly and think about eternal life, not just the death event. For that is the passage to eternal life for all of us who know Jesus. And that's beautiful. I think as I grow older that the reason that some of these pains exist and some of these issues arise is because God says, I don't want you to get so settled into this lifetime. I want you to realize there's something blessed coming, so I'm just going to give you a little motivation to realize what's coming. So put it in perspective. This is all just for a moment compared to the blessedness of eternity. If you look on down at verses 6 and 7, he says, here's what else I want you to hear. He said, John, it's done. I have already decided how it's going to work out. And nothing is going to change that. It's been resolved, it's been planned, and now it's working itself out. And then he says a beautiful thing. He says, those who thirst after this spiritual experience, I'm going to reach out to them. And through Jesus... I'm going to quench their thirst. Well, you and I know the teaching of Scripture says that what he does is he helps us identify that thirst. He helps generate that thirst. And what he's saying is, I'm going to stir people who are in spiritual darkness, and not only am I going to stir them, I'm going to resolve that for them by introducing them to my son Jesus. And that is like a spring that just flows and flows and flows with no end. 
and he says the magic words, and there's no cost to you. This isn't something you have to achieve. This is something I'm going to do for you because I love you. This is something I'm going to do for you because I want you to spend eternity with me. Praise God. Isn't it a beautiful story about what God has planned? And he said, it is done. Look at the way he ends this very thought. He says, you're going to receive an inheritance. The whole doctrine of adoption that you read in Romans 8 helps you to understand. The, uh, when you're adopted into the family of God, you and I become heirs of all that Jesus is an heir to. So you can be absolutely sure God has already decided that when you die, he is going to take your soul to heaven. And you can be absolutely sure that after the second coming, you're going to get a resurrected body and you're going to live in the new heaven and the new earth for eternity with God. That is your inheritance. You didn't earn it. It's because you're a child of God. And then he says to us, I will be your God. And you will be my sons. Amen. Be of good cheer, my friends. What God has planned for us is more beautiful than you can imagine. I have an acquaintance who preached a similar sermon one Sunday. And he said to his church at the end of the sermon, he said, you know, if the Lord were to take me right now, and he did at that moment, and my acquaintance fell dead in the pulpit into the arms of the Lord, and it would have broken his heart if people hadn't thought about where he had just gone. He was okay. When you cry at a funeral, don't cry for the believer. Cry for yourself because you're going to miss them for a while. But don't cry for them. They're okay. They're in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the clarity of your word. And I thank you, dear God, that in a very loving way, you have chosen to speak to us, to help us understand more about what's coming and what we're going to be the recipient of, and to remind us, dear God, it's already worked out. Thank you for loving us. Thanks for telling John, and thank you for telling all of us since that day. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You know, the sermon that we've just heard ought to bring rest to our souls. He says, I am the bread of life. He who cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I promise. Let's pray. Father, please set these elements aside today and allow your Holy Spirit to use them in us as individuals to draw us closer to you, to help us enjoy you. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is number 413. 413. And let's stand and sing the first, second, and third verses. Number 413. I want to get an invitation, and please listen carefully. I want to invite any of you who have accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior to come to this table. You do not have to be a member of our church or our denomination. You do need to be a member of a Bible-teaching church and be in good standing in that church. Secondly, I'd 
remind you that what we're going to do in a moment is our elders are going to bring the elements to you. As they bring the elements to you, please hold your element. We're a family. God's made us a family. We're going to spend eternity together. I sure hope you like each other. And what we're going to do is we're going to experience that in a manner this morning by taking the elements together. The third thing is there is an awesome warning in Scripture that we need to take very seriously. If you have a sin in your life and you're not wrestling with it, don't come to this table. If you have a sin in your life and you're wrestling with it and don't have it resolved, let the elements pass you by. We are to take this seriously and understand the cost that Jesus paid that you and I might be reminded of his atoning death. If you have a sin in your life and you are resolved to be rid of that sin, you tell the Lord that this morning and come to this table. It is set for repentant sinners like you and me. This is intended to be a reminder. It's intended to be an encouragement to us between now and the time that we depart this place and go to heaven. Let's allow it to be that. Scripture clearly says that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, that Thursday night of Holy Week, went to an upper room, and there in that upper room he sat around a table being the host with all of his disciples, all 12. And at the beginning of their Passover meal, he took bread and he broke that bread and he said to them, this is my body, you take and you eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same fashion, after they had experienced the Passover together, as is the custom in most of the Middle East, he poured out wine into a chalice and he began to pass it one person to another. And he said, a new covenant has been poured out for you. It's been poured out in my blood. So you take and you drink of this in remembrance of me. Let's do those two things. You're going to have a quiet time as the elements are being passed. Remember what he has done for you.
Are you reminded that when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they called out to God and he provided manna. He provided water and meat. He gave them all the things that were essential to physical life. And they perished spiritually. Something was missing. The very bread of life. We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus is that bread of life. When his Holy Spirit touches us, we are regenerated. We are capable of loving and being loved. Take this and eat of it in remembrance of the grace of God in your life.
in our human minds, seems like there always has to be a key to open a door. You know what the key to heaven is? It's the shed blood of Jesus that has washed away our sins. And now we can spend eternity with God. Take and drink of this in remembrance of what he's done. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time around the table and our time here at your church. I pray, Lord, that the spirit that you have bestowed on us would continue to be active when we leave this place. Thank you for this beautiful reminder that we're saved by grace. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is number 413. 413, the last two verses, verse 4 and verse 5. A good investment of time, is it not? A good place to be. I hope you felt the presence of God this morning. And I hope when you walk out that you and I are going to say, I really do believe I belong to him and I have a place in heaven waiting on me. Amen. God bless you and God keep you, my friends. May his face shine on you. And may you walk in the power of his spirit and just reflect his glory wherever you go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.